Good morning, everyone. So, as you've heard over the last couple of weeks, we're going to have this amazing guest speaker. Surprise! <laughs> this is a lot different than the first service. There's way more people out here. It's a deep breath. There we go. Thanks, Roger. About a month ago, uh, Pastor Rex sent me a text. Said that he was going to be preaching a series on shining for Jesus. And he listed out some topics evangelism, worship, marriage, tithing. And he asked if I would be willing to fill in one Sunday and if I would choose a topic. And this is something that he's asked me over the last year, and I just keep kind of pushing it off. Um, I'm busy that day. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not because I'm here on Sundays. But, but this particular day when I received this text, it was, I, I just knew that I wanted to be up here and that God would have me be up here. But I wasn't thinking of those topics, even though I read through them and considered. But what I thought of was, what is our motivation in doing these things? Not how to do them, but Why? What motivates us to do what we do? And so when I say that, when I say motivation, what immediately comes to your mind? I'm sure everybody's different. But what is it that you think of when you hear motivation? Do you think of an athlete who's extremely motivated to be the best, to achieve that prize, that goal, the record, Perhaps a high school athlete who's trying to get a scholarship, and that's their motivation. Because the world tells us to be motivated, we need to receive something. There's an incentive, and a lot of times it's selfish. We think about diet plans, workout plans, and all the things that they point to. This is what you're going to look like. That motivates us. But what I want us to look at today, and hopefully clear our minds from what we've been taught about motivation growing up and what we've possibly um, motivated our kids with, motivated ourselves with. Clear all that out of the way, and I want us to look at what, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul is talking about when it comes to motivation. What motivated Paul? And there are three groups that are from, from this passage that are still relevant today. We've got the Jewish believers, we have Peter, and then we have Paul. All three believing similar. All three looking to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but maybe a little bit confused between the three of them. And I believe that that is still relevant today, and we're going to see that. What I want to look at is the gospel. You can go ahead and go to Galatians chapter 2. But what I want to look at is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Satisfying for eternity 
the penalty for sin. He arose in victory so that those who believe in him do not have death, but have eternal life adopted into the family of God. And we've heard this. But what I want to make sure is that we don't think of the gospel as something that we experienced the day that we got saved. 21 years ago, I experienced the gospel for the first time. But I don't want us to think about the gospel as being in the past. Because there isn't a day that goes by where the gospel is not relevant. Because the gospel puts us into a position with Jesus Christ, with God. We're going to see in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul saw this as a reality. That it was the core of our belief. That it was what motivated Paul. A little bit of history before we start in on Galatians chapter 2. Christianity began in Jerusalem amongst the Jews, but it soon spread worldwide because, as we know, Jesus Christ didn't just die for a single group. He didn't just die for the Jews. He died for everyone. He died for the Gentiles. And as Paul began his ministry, there were as many non-Jewish or Gentiles believers as there were Jewish believers. And as you can imagine, this caused a lot of conflict. Because, see, the Jewish believers, they had been set aside by what they had done. They had been set aside by practicing the laws of Moses. Circumcision, eating or not eating the right, the right foods, keeping the Sabbath, sacrifices, and many, many others that they were unable to keep. Because those things did not provide them the relationship with God. And you see in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, that there were some teachers that would go, or some Jewish believers that would go behind Paul's back to the churches that he preached in, and he would tell these, these new converts that unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. He's telling the Galatians, you are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Paul begins this letter, verse 1, chapter 1, by stating that he was not appointed by a human authority. He was appointed by Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who rose him from the dead. But those new converts were quickly starting to follow the teachings of these false teachers. And obviously that frustrated Paul. And he was brokenhearted. And that brings us to where we are in Galatians chapter 2. And if you look at the first 10 verses, in summary, what is happening there is that Paul had visited Jerusalem. He had heard about these false teachers going into the churches and, and saying how you had to keep the law of Moses as well as believing in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Him and Barnabas went back to Jerusalem and they had a meeting with the church elders to clarify, this is what I've been preaching. 
These are the results that I'm having. And I am not requiring the Gentile believers to do the same things as the Jewish. I'm not requiring these laws and I'm not preaching these things. In verse 9, you see, in fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me. And they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. See, they were in agreement with, with Paul because they knew what the gospel had provided. But what we're going to focus on today is verses 11 through 21. So we'll go ahead and read those. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Verse 14, which is what everything in this message is hinged on. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter, In front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews at birth, not sinners like the Gentiles, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. We'll skip down to verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if God, if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. So let's summarize what's happening here. Peter visited Antioch, and the purpose for visiting Antioch was he wanted to see these new Gentile believers. And he did. He went in, he ate with them, he communed with them, um, he fellowshiped with them. But as soon as this other group, the Jewish believers... And not all Jewish believers, by the way, at this time were this way. But this certain group that is in this passage is what, what I'm going to refer to. When he saw those, those Jewish uh, believers coming into Antioch, he immediately stopped hanging out with the Gentiles for fear that he'd be criticized. Now, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. Like it's, it's a turning point in history or a turning point in Peter's life. But Paul called it hypocrisy. So it was obvious if the Apostle Paul is going to point you out and call you out in front of everybody that that is serious. Right? And so he saw what Peter was doing and he immediately said, no, 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 no. Now he could have said any number of scripture verses that tells Peter what you're doing is wrong, stop. 
Start doing this. Start doing this. Start doing this. But he didn't. What he did was he pointed Paul or pointed Peter right back to the gospel because he saw that Peter was not living in line with the truth of the gospel message. So when I say what, are, what motivates us to shine for Jesus Christ, Paul is saying it's the gospel. And why? So we're going to go over three points today, and each point builds on the point before it. First, the gospel provides our righteousness. And when we claim that, when we believe that, and that becomes part of our life, the gospel provides our identity. Not just knowing what righteousness is, but claiming it. The gospel becomes our identity. And then third, having those two things, the gospel provi- provokes our gratitude. So let's look first at righteousness. Verses 15 and 16 of Galatians chapter 2, if you're still there. You and I are Jews at birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. By the way, he's not saying we're not sinners. He's just saying we are Jewish sinners by birth, not Gentile sinners by birth. Yet we know that a person is, and notice how many times he says this, made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be might may might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Now, the Jewish believers, they did believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. That was not the arguing point for the Jewish believers. What they were still clinging to was the traditions that they had before the Messiah, that they'd had for centuries Because the entire Old Testament is building up to the Messiah. And everything that occurred law-wise was to protect and to keep. And we learn this in in Galatians chapter chapter 3. The purpose of the law was to protect and guard God's children. It was to point out what they were doing was wrong. So that they could see that what do they need? Righteousness. But those laws could never give that to them. However the Jewish believers thought that it still had to. So they didn't fully grasp what the gospel provided. This is what they thought. They thought, you believe, you obey, and you are saved. And that is opposite of what Paul was teaching. So to clarify that the gospel provides our righteousness, there's two terms that we're going to look at, and it's justification and sanctification. And if you've been through our new members class, we briefly touched on these, uh, one of the 39 questions that we went over in that class. Justification and sanctification. And very simply put, justification is to be made right with God, to be righteous, to be perfect. And sanctification is to be made holy. It's the process of being made holy into the image of Jesus Christ. I'm going to have you turn 
to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. And by the way, we will be going back and forth. Uh, so if you want to keep something in uh, Galatians chapter 2, that might be helpful. But we're going to go to, to Hebrews chapter 10 to try to point out the difference between justification and sanctification and why they're important in terms of our righteousness. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. Skip down to verse 11. Under the Old Covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And here's victory. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. Verse 14, remember, justification is sanctification. For by that one offering, speaking of Jesus Christ, he forever made perfect, forever, for eternity, made perfect, those who are being made holy. And who's he talking about? Those who are being made holy. Those who are already perfect. Children of God. Justification is being made right with God. In verse 20 of Galatians chapter 2, he refers to being crucified with Christ. It is no longer him that lives, but Christ that lives within him. So if we can picture at the time that Jesus was crucified. We were crucified with him. But we were also raised with him. And at that point in time, just as Romans 1.17 says, this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. In Romans chapter 3, we're told that nobody seeks God, that there is no righteous. Nobody does right. Nobody's seeking right. But then in verse 24, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. We did absolutely nothing. God declares us to be righteous by our union with Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, and that is it. The only thing that we bring to the salvation table is a need, which you can't bring. We have nothing to offer. All we have is to take. And what we took, what we were given, was justification. He does not demand our righteousness because it was already given to us. There is nothing that we do. There is nothing that we have. In sanctification, 
being made holy. Forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Hebrews chapter 10, 14. The process of being made holy into the image of Jesus Christ. John 17. This is Jesus praying right before he was betrayed by Judas and arrested. So this is Jesus' prayer to the Father. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. And the best part is verse 20. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. And that is you and I today. So you see here, this is what the Jewish believers believed. That you believe and you obey and you're saved. You're part of that salvation. The obey part. And what Paul's saying is, no, absolutely not. You believe and you're saved, period. And because of that, you obey. Because again, we bring nothing to the table. Absolutely nothing. So why is it important to clarify this term, righteousness or justification? Because as we do good things throughout our day, as we go be the church and we love God and we love others and we're an image of Christ to our wives, we respect our husbands, we love our children, those things although we may not be thinking it and coming out right and saying it, they quickly become our pursuit of righteousness. And we become anxious. Am I, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? How could I possibly be good enough? We get them mixed up. We feel like we have to, we have to become righteous in order for God to uh, approve us or to love us. But that's not the truth of the gospel message. The truth of the gospel message is you're already righteous. You're already perfect. That's the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. The fact that you, you are already perfect. Because every day you're going to fail multiple times. How many times have we gone through a day? I leave my house at 6 a.m. and I get home at 6 p.m. And on my drive home, about 30 minutes, I can, how many times I've thought to myself over the last 12 hours, how many times have I not only thought about a promise of God, I've not claimed it. Because I'm living on my own. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives with the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Again, anxious. Am I doing it right? Am I good enough? Nope, you're not. None of us are. But that's what's so beautiful about the gospel providing our righteousness. The burden has been lifted off of us to be perfect. 
But we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Because we are, because we are forever made perfect, He is continually making us holy through His Word and through the Holy Spirit. Here's a quote from John Piper that sums it up. Thinking of justification and sanctification. The power by which you daily strive to overcome the imperfections in your life, that power is the confidence that you're already perfect. So if we get that, if we can understand and claim and take to heart the truth of the gospel message, which is, I am already righteous. That is my power to continue to overcome the imperfections in my life which are abundant. But if we're striving to do that on our own because we're trying to become righteous, we're going to fail. I'm going to fall down these steps. And that's what's beautiful about the gospel. We don't have to. So why should we be motivated by the gospel? Because it provides our righteousness. And when we claim that, when we believe that, and it becomes a core in our life, it also provides our identity. See, Peter knew the gospel. He was experienced. He's up there. But Paul called him out. Why did Paul call him out? Do we, re- we remember Paul? He was Saul. He had Christians murdered. And here he, here he is calling out Peter. And he's calling him out because what he did was absolutely wrong and hypocritical. And he was not following the truth of the gospel message. Verse 12 of Galatians 2, if you're still there. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas, who had been traveling with Paul, was led astray by the hypocrisy. So why is it important? Verse 14, when I saw they were not following the truth of the gospel message. We can understand why Peter or Paul is so upset. Because if he's going around teaching these churches that you don't have to abide, abide by the Jewish law in order to be saved, and then all of a sudden his counterpart, who we learned previously had agreed with him, is backing away and shying away from the, the Gentiles. But why, why is he doing that? I believe, based on what Paul is saying in Galatians 2 and then throughout the rest of the, the, the book of Galatians, he's referring to our desperate need for assurance and our desperate need for value because from the beginning of time, we were created to commune with God. But in the garden... When Adam fell, that's when we were separated. And there began our 100% void from God, completely separated. And we've been trying to fill that void ever since, primarily to make ourselves feel better. 
Now, I'm not going to bash Paul, Peter because obviously I am no, by no means better than him. And don't look over at that section, but there's a bunch of people over there that can tell you that I'm not perfect. But he was afraid of the criticism that he was going to get instead of the righteousness that he already had. And he was seeking value by putting himself above the Gentiles and looking down and saying, I'm, well, I'm better than they are. And how often do we do that? See, our identity is a child of God. And that is what the gospel message is. And without it, we serve anxiously. We get discouraged. What is our identity? I, I love my wife, but I'm a child of God. My wife loves me, but she's a child of God. That is what we are first. First and foremost. And that is all that Paul is trying to tell Peter. You already have an identity. Go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Paul is telling Peter, why, why do you think you're above these Gentiles? First of all, you're not. But second of all, you don't have to be. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23 Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. And he holds all creation together. He's also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in absolutely everything. Verse 19. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And here's our identity. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Romans chapter 3. Yet now... He has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, our identity, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. And perhaps the most important part as pertains to what we're talking about. Verse 23 but you must continue to believe this truth 
and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you've received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's service servant to proclaim it. 1 John 3, 1-2 See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. With an exclamation point, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they do not know him. Where do we find our identity? By following the truth of the gospel message. I'm going to do, have a, just a small, very simple illustration. A day-to-day operation, if you will. Let's pretend we're going to have a married couple here. Let's pretend we have a married couple. They've been married for 18 years. And for the sake of an illustration, we're going to name the married couple Jerry and Janelle. Now, again, for the sake of illustration, let's pretend that Jerry is a hopeless romantic. And he leaves a little post-it note on Janelle's coffee. Right? I love you. I'm praying for you. Because he's motivated by the gospel. And he wants to love his wife like Jesus Christ loved the church. And he leaves this note. Quit laughing, Bo. He leaves this note and he goes throughout his day. Remember, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m.? And not once does he hear from Janelle. And everybody is thinking, what? (laughs) And just for the sake of outside the illustration, she's always very thankful. But back into the illustration. Doesn't hear from Janelle. Nothing. And what does he do? She don't care about that. I'm never doing that again. Obviously, she doesn't care. And all these thoughts go into his head. And it seems natural, right? Because I deserve to be happy. My focus came away from, I'm saying, I'm sorry, not my. Jerry's focus came away from this post-it note. I said that because, see, that's God calling me out right on the stage. I've thought this way before, and that's why I'm sharing it with you. Jerry's focus is no longer the gospel. Again, this is a very small example, but watch how it grows. Jerry's focus is no longer the gospel. What is it? It's him. I'm seeking value. I'm seeking assurance. And who did I put the burden on? I put it on Janelle. This incredible burden for her to respond a certain way so that I can feel a certain way. How selfish is that? Because remember, Jerry's original motivation was the gospel and loving his wife like Jesus Christ loved the church. Right? It's not anymore. It's him. And he put that burden on Janelle. How stressful is that for her? And it's not just marriage relationships. Like I said, that's a very small example. But what happens when Jerry comes home from work that night and didn't receive anything and still didn't? And he pulls back. And then she pulls back. 
and then he pulls back, and then she pulls back. And now you got this separation. Why? Because Jerry is not motivated by the gospel. She is. And she was happy, and God was pleased that he left the note. Poor little Jerry didn't get his assurance and his value. Again, a simple illustration, but it happens in relationships across the board, and we suck the life out of our friends. Because it's about us. It's about how I feel. Because I got this, right? I got this, but I don't. Remember, I don't have anything. The only thing I bring to the table is a sinner. That's it. I leave with a lot, but I don't bring anything. Why are we motivated? Why should we be motivated by the gospel? Because it provides our righteousness. And if we can 100% claim that, it will provide your identity. But last, what happens when you have righteousness and you have this identity? Provokes gratitude. The gospel provokes our gratitude. Go back to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to look down in verses 20 and 21. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we've heard that verse all through our lives. Unfortunately, a lot of times when you see it as a quote or a little image, we don't see verse 21. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. All throughout Paul's letters, he talks about his thankfulness and his gratitude to God. Why? Because he had righteousness. He has righteousness and he has an identity. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him, not, not Paul, it pleased God to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Psalm 50, verses 7, 15, 7 to 15. Please turn there if you could, and this will be the last uh, portion of Scripture that I'll have you turn to. Psalm 50, verse 7 through 15. O my people, listen as I speak. Here are my charges against you, O Israel. I am God, your God. I have no complaint about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings you've constantly offered. But I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own a cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains and all the animals in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For all the world is mine and everything in it. Do I eat meat of bulls? 
Do I drink the blood of goat? No. Verse 14. Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. And keep the vows you made to the Most High. Then call on me when you're in trouble and I will rescue you. And you will give me glory. See, when we seek for righteousness and we try to create our righteousness... God doesn't need it. The creator doesn't need me or what I have. But what he's asking here is to make thankfulness our sacrifice to God. It takes the burden off of us. Because all we have to do is be thankful. Receiving a gift and be thankful. There's no need to pay it back. Number one, you can't pay it back. Number two, you'll spend the rest of your life in anguish, anxiety, discouragement because you're never going to make it. And when I say you, I mean me as well. I'm going to have the worship team come up because we're about finished here. Um, We're going to look at, for our last verse, Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, verses 3 through 6. Uh, Verse 3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Perfect. Righteous. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Verse 6. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. I don't claim to have mastered anything that I've talked about today. But I want to share why this is so important to me and how it came to the forefront of my mind and how it is alive. And I try to make it true every day. Growing up, I wasn't like a whole lot of boys my age, like in high schoolish, because all I wanted was a wife and kids. That's it. And God saved me at the age of 17 as a senior in high school. And I didn't fully understand the gospel at that point. But I knew my need, and I knew I had nothing. And on my 21st birthday, I married my beautiful wife. And that was the second greatest day of my life. Because remember, I'm a child of God. And I finally had my wife. Thanks to God. And I came home from work one day, and I think it was for Bo. She had the onesie over her stomach when I walked in the door. 
And that was it. I was smitten. And I was scared because I didn't know if I was going to be able to love like I love her. I didn't know if I was going to be able to love. We found out he was going to be a boy. And when Bo was born, I absolutely... This is harder than the first service. I absolutely fell in love with my son. And I talked to him while he was on the test table and they're pinching him and poking him and doing the things that they didn't need to do. And when I would talk, he'd stop crying. Then he would try to find my voice because I talked to Janelle's stomach for nine months. And then when I would stop talking, he'd cry. Absolutely in love. Still am. Right, Bo? And then she said that we were going to be having another baby two and a half years later. And what a lot of guys, men, fathers, may be afraid to admit, my biggest fear is how am I going to love another baby like I love Bo? And then my Malachi was born. And I absolutely fell in love with him too. Crazy thing. And he did the same thing. Quiet when I was talking, crying when I wasn't. And it wasn't like a beam of sun or ray of light came down on the table for both of them or on the changing table when I was changing their diaper and said, this is a picture of what I've done for you. But over the years, I've realized the love that a father has for his son, what God did in sacrificing Jesus Christ on the cross. And I thought I knew it. But I didn't. Because in 2014, there's a four-month-old baby girl that I fell in love with when I pulled the blanket back on her car carrier. Four months old. Born addicted to heroin. Crystal meth and a baby. And I absolutely fell in love with Allie. And I knew from that second that I wanted her to be my daughter and I wanted her to be part of my family. And there was nothing that was going to stop that. Nothing. And we fortunately didn't have to fight. It was very easy. God laid it out and Allie is ours. Forever a reader. But when I looked at Allie and thought of her being adopted and what God had done by looking down at us and loving us so much that he's willing to give his son so that we could be adopted to his family. I love my boys. How could I ever do that? And that was it for me. I don't bring anything to the table, but I leave with righteousness. I leave with an identity. And 
I pray every day that I have gratitude. And I'm not perfect. But that's why we need to be motivated by the gospel. What else can we be motivated by? Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for our position in it. I thank you for emotion. I thank you for family. I thank you for church family. And I just pray, God, that as we continue in this walk to serve you, I pray that you would continue to sanctify us. I thank you for our righteousness and the fact that we are already perfect and we can live with freedom from that. I just pray that we would not forget it. That we would be like the Apostle Paul and we would live a life by following the truth of the gospel message. For everyone here today, Strengthen their hearts, their minds. Give them freedom as we live to serve you. We love you, Lord, above all. In Jesus' name, amen.